set up here. If you would turn to the end of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy is the uh, fifth book uh, that you have. And we'll be going through the end of chapter 4 and most of chapter 5. And uh, as Frank mentioned, uh, we're coming into a long section on the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's actually over 20 chapters. Um, and so today is going to be sort of the overview uh, look. Um, so let's go ahead and read Deuteronomy, starting at chapter 4, verses 44, all the way through Deuteronomy 5, verses 22. And listen carefully, as this is God's word, and this is also... I, as you will hear, be God's law. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt beyond the Jordan from the valley opposite Beth Peor in the land of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan. From Eror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon. Together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of Arabah under the slopes of Pisgah. So that's basically all just saying where this is happening. So, picking up in chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while well, I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath, Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, 
And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it while we wait with the people of Israel in the land between. Thank you for giving us the book of Deuteronomy and making us your people. You have brought us to the Ten Commandments as the gracious revelation of you and of us. You teach us that the law follows your grace and never precedes it. But it's hard for us to believe that. So, as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us to consider what it means to love and obey your law. And so we pray, speak through the words of Moses this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us know God more and see Jesus clearly. For in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. A few years ago, uh, there was an article on the CNN website entitled, Behold, Atheist New Ten Commandments. The story explains how uh, Lex Beyer, an executive at Airbnb, and John Figdor, a humanist chaplain at Stanford University, tried to crowdsource 10 non-commandments. They solicited input from around the world and they offered $10,000 to the winning would-be Moses. And after receiving 2,800 submissions, they appointed a panel of 13 judges to select the 10 winners. Here's what they came up with, the 10 non-commandments of our age. There we go. So, be open-minded and willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. The scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Every person has the right to control of their body. God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. We have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. There is no one right way to live. Leave the world a better place than you found it. Well, that all sounds well and good, but not with respect to God's law. But in terms of how many people think about their moral obligations, you can leave that up for a little bit. These non-commandments capture the default moral code of our day. Nevertheless, I would hope, perhaps naively, um, that after thinking about them for a little bit, 
we would see that these nine commandments are filled with some stunning contradictions. They say you don't need God to be a good person or to know how to live in number five, and yet the seventh nine commandment is a summary of the golden rule, which comes to us from Jesus in Matthew 7. They talk about the scientific method in number three, without an awareness that Francis Bacon's method of scientific observation gained popularity in large measure because Reformed theologians saw Bacon's approach as a good way to make observations about God's created world. And then there's the second to last of these non-commandments. There is no one right way to live. Well, how does that square with the other nine in the list that are telling you that's the right way to live? How can we be told to leave the planet a better place and think of others and exercise control over our bodies if there really is no one right way to live? So which is it? Do as we say or do as you please? It can't be both. More to the point, these non-commandments are logically indefensible. They're presumably called non-commandments, so not to sound so commandment-ish a new word. And yet they're all commands. They all carry the force of a moral ought. So we live in this paradoxical age where many will say right and wrong is what you decide for yourself. And yet those same people will cancel others for violating any number of assumed commands. As a culture, we may be quite free and liberal when it comes to human sexuality, but we can be absolutely fundamentalist when it comes to the moral claims of the sexual revolution. The old swear words may not scandalize us any longer, but now there's new swear words, offensive slurs and insults that will quickly put someone out of polite company. We are still a society with a moral code even if it's a defective one. Now, the non-commandment contest was a publicity stunt for a book that was being written on atheistic humanism. Uh, but the authors seem to believe, uh, and I made the case in, in several articles, it's a fine idea to develop your moral code by checking the opinions of everyone around you. They said humans are hardwired for compassion and the scientific method and the wisdom of crowds or the tribes that gather online each day will weed out all the bad ideas. Now, I don't know what internet they're looking at, but I have not found online to be a place that's entirely trustworthy for weeding out bad ideas. And remember, they had to appoint judges to pick out the best non-commandments. They realize instinctively that they may not come up with a great moral code just by asking uh, thousands of people what they think. Now, as far as the actual Ten Commandments, while they're called the commandments, they're never called the Ten Commandments uh, in the Old Testament. What they are in Hebrew is the Ten Words, which is why they're often referred to as uh, the Decalogue which is simply Greek for 10 words. These are the 10 words that God gave the Israelites at Mount Sinai 
and we can take that down now. And the Ten Words that God wants all of us to follow. Whatever we call them, the Ten Commandments are certainly commands. More than that for sure, but not less. And the problem people have with them is not what they're called, but with what they contain. So studying the Ten Commandments reveals the very heart of our human rebellion. We don't like God telling us what we can or cannot do. And so the next 20 chapters of Deuteronomy are going to be a lengthy exposition of the commandments. The next four chapters are, are going to be a long sort of prelude to the first commandment. And then we're going to go through all ten in ten weeks. Um, so I'm not going to deal with them individually today. But rather I'm going to look at them collectively and hopefully answer a bunch of questions uh, about them. And it should give us the big picture of their value for us. So the first question is the Ten Commandments. What are they? I'm actually going to spend a lot of time on this one. What are they? This is the first and most important thing to understand. What are the Ten Commandments? Another way of asking that is to ask, what is God's law? Is it a set of arbitrary decrees that God has come up with to keep us in line? Well, the first thing to know is that the law of God is an expression of his nature. So when God says, don't lie or don't bear false witness, he says that because he doesn't lie. Because he's a God of integrity, a God of truth, and utterly consistent. And since you and I are made in his image, that means the law of God then is intended to reflect our true nature. That's important. The law reflects our nature. We were made in his image, and if the law expresses his nature, then it reflects what we need to be in order to fully be who we're meant to be. For example, let's go back to lying and talk about lying for a second. All kinds of scholars have understood over the years that you have to have some measure of truth in a society for there to be any kind of economic life or civic life or family life, any kind of life at all. And so when God says don't lie, he's not giving you busy work. Uh, it's not an arbitrary de decree. He's saying to lie goes against your nature as human beings, against what I made you to be. So we're talking pre-fall nature. And he says, therefore, to violate the law of God violates your nature, violates the, the way I made you in creation. Now, let's have a, just sort of an everyday example. Say you have a bad heart and you're subject to having heart attacks. So you go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you, you shouldn't eat X, Y, and Z. But then you go home and you really love X, Y, and Z, so you eat them. Nobody's going to fine you. Nobody's going to give you a ticket. Nobody's going to put you in jail. They don't have to because the consequences are natural. 
If you violate your doctor's order, you're violating your own nature, and there are consequences that you will surely pay. And that's somewhat what God is saying here. He says, don't think of the law of God as an arbitrary decree. The law of God outlines who you are. And to violate the law of God strains your life in a way that can only lead to sin and to brokenness. Just as eating all the wrong foods that your doctor told you not to eat will eventually lead to a heart attack. He says violating the law of God violates yourself and leads to sin and brokenness in your life. To violate it violates our own being, and yet to fulfill it fulfills us. Now, one of the things that we're going to emphasize as we go through this, uh, all these commandments, is that grace comes before law. That's not a New Testament principle. That's actually an Old Testament principle. In the Christian life, God's grace precedes God's law. It's God's grace that enables us to obey God's law. It's not that if we obey the law, God will show us grace. It's because God has already shown us grace that we're able to obey the law. And this is what Moses longs for his people to know. Obedience is not a response to God's law. It is a response to God's grace. And we can see this in our text. The key verse is actually not the Ten Commandments laid out, but the prelude, verse 6, often called the preamble. Look at verse 6. With me, the law is founded upon God's saving acts. The commands are given after God redeemed them. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God has taken the initiative to save the Israelites before giving them the law. So the law is being contrasted with the house of slavery. God first saves us, and the law is a consequence of that salvation. If he's already led them out of death, how much more will he now lead them into life? So the commandments help us to continue in that salvation life which God has given us by grace. Now, in other religions, the gods show people how to live, and that way of life is primary to the religion. It's based on what you do. In biblical religion, the primary is not the way of life, but the way to life through the salvation that God gives us by his grace. It's not based on what I do, it's based on what he has already done. So we see that Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works or the result of keeping the law so that no one may boast. The law flows from that. Law follows gospel. That's important, because many people teach the Ten Commandments as a formula for a happy life. And of course, it's true that if you obey God's law, God has blessings in store for those who are obedient. We don't want to uh, deny that in any way. But the fact of the matter is, many people speak as if keeping the Ten Commandments guarantees you a happy life. And so the key to a happy life becomes keeping uh, these moral laws. That is not how God intended the Ten Commandments to work. He set them in a specific context 
and invested them with much more significance than just principles for happy life. So when we get to the fourth commandment, uh, we're going to see that in the book of Exodus, where the commandments are first given, the Ten Commandments are based on the doctrine of creation. Exodus tells us that we're created in God's image and dependent on Him for life, for physical life. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments are based on the doctrine of redemption. Deuteronomy tells us that we're redeemed from bondage and dependent on God for our spiritual life. Now, in the New Testament, we'll find both. First, we're redeemed by the blood of Christ, shed for many for the remission of sins. And second, the risen Christ works a new creation within us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Which may be why Paul says in Colossians 2, uh, speaking about the commandments, he says they're a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So that's one of the things that we need to see. We have both creation, redemption, Deuteronomy emphasizes redemption. The New Testament brings both together. Another thing we're going to see about these uh, commandments is they serve as family instructions. They're not just a law code for the people of Israel or for any generic population. Often when we hear the word law, our minds immediately go to whatever our laws are. You think of the volumes and volumes of civil law and criminal code. Um, and actually, I looked this up. No one knows exactly how many laws exist in this country. In fact, the congressman asked, um, oh, I forget the government agency that keeps track of everything. They asked him to give him a, a, a number how many laws. And four years later, they wrote back they didn't have enough time, money, or manpower to answer the question. So while there is civil law in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments are not civil law. And so while they serve as laws for their community, they're especially written for the people who claim to be a part of God's family. These are God's own instructions to his own household. There's family law. Think about it. This is as if a parent or a father says to his children, these are the house rules. This is the way we're going to act. This is the way we're going to live. This is the way we're going to look. This is the way we're going to be different from the world. And so now God is gathering his children around him. He gathers Israel around him. And he says, this is what I'm like. So this is what you're going to be like because you're going to be like me. I'm a holy God, and therefore, you're going to be holy. I'm a God who's loving towards his enemies, so you're going to be loving towards his enemies. I'm a God who's bound up in love, and so you're going to love your neighbors. And he sets out this law before them as family instructions for the people of God. So in some sense, you could say these are the house rules for those that God has chosen. So that's what they are. Second, we have to ask, what do they do? For the Ten Commandments, what do they do? God didn't give us the law so we could be saved by them. In the earliest days of Genesis, God pointed to a Savior who alone could save us. So if God didn't give us the law to be saved, why did he give it to us? Well, 
The law has three basic purposes. First, the law is a bridle as it restrains sin. Bridle, bit and bridle, you put in a horse's mouth so you can control the horse. So the law is a bridle as it restrains sin. So by giving us the moral law, God helps to restrain sin. A society without moral law is considered anarchy. Everyone does what they want. Their motivation is only to advance and promote themselves. The law of God points us to a higher standard and thus it reigns in sin. The very threat of eternal punishment for breaking God's law has some measure of restraint on our society. You think about how this works. Consider laws against speeding as an example. You may think that law is unnecessary. You may disobey the law frequently. And yet you don't drive as fast as you might if the law wasn't there. Because the possibility that a state trooper is just over the next hill restrains your need for speed. It may restrain you a lot. It may just restrain you a little. But it exercises some restraint against your sin nature. That's the first use of the moral law. It restrains sin. Second, the law is a mirror that shows us our sin and drives us to Christ. When we read God's law, we see God describing a measure of obedience and holiness that we don't attain. And the law acts like a mirror because it reveals the flaws in our own character. Now, nobody blames the mirror when you're ugly. And whether it's physical characteristics or spiritual characteristics or moral characteristics, the mirror reveals who we are. And without God's law, what we do is just keep uh, continuing to change the standard to condone our desires rather than adjusting our desires to God's standards. We see this tension constantly in our own society. Popular opinion is constantly seeking to water down God's standards on morality, ethics, and character. And one reason is God's law tells us the truth that we don't want to hear. You know, it tells us things that we don't want to know. Even the Apostle Paul says this in Sunday school this morning. James mentioned Romans 7. <coughs> One of the verses, Romans 7, verse 7, says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. <coughs> Excuse me. So the law shows us our sin, makes us aware of our need for grace. Paul says uh, elsewhere, Galatians 3, 24, says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified uh, by faith. So the law is put in charge to lead us to Christ. And some translations actually translate it that way. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. The law of God helps us to see the truth about ourselves so that we're willing to receive the salvation presented to us in Christ. The law uh, reveals our sin and drives us to Christ. That's the second use of the law. Third, the law is a flashlight that reveals the heart of God and the duty of man. 
it shows us the narrow path in which we should walk. So that's the third use of the law, what John Calvin called the principal use of the law. <coughs> and he says the third reason we should love the law is it teaches us about the heart of God. The law reveals what God considers to be right behavior. The law shows us God's desires for our life and for our character. The law tells us the right way to live. It's the standard that serves our goal. The law defines God-pleasing behavior. It tells us, quite simply, how God wants us to live. And it alerts us to dangers and pitfalls. And most of the commandments we get in the negative. But there's a positive use for everyone. So if you are not going, you're told uh, you shall not murder, but the positive side is you also should do things that bring life uh, to other people. As we go through the commandments, you're going to see both the positive and the negative for that. One of the greatest expositions of positive and negative use of the law is found in the Westminster Larger Catechism. I'm sure we'll be quoting from that a lot over the next couple of months. But the law of God helps us develop the right attitudes and to focus on the right issues. And we need to listen to the law of God, not so that we get to heaven, but so we might know how to live appropriately this side of heaven. So that's what they do. The three uses of the law. So third, we have to ask, are they still in effect? Do the Ten Commandments still apply? And I get this question because there's a lot of people who don't believe that the Ten Commandments still apply today. Why are they still authoritative in our day and time? There's a lot of good answers to that question. Let me just mention a few things. And first is, we have to remember the Ten Commandments themselves are God's law. They're not our law. They're God's law. And as God's law, they're a reflection of His character, and they're unique. Whereas some of God's law was written on scrolls, was basically dictated to people, often called scribes, the commandments were written by God with his own finger on stone. Furthermore, they were spoken by God directly to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, and they're clearly distinguished as something that's permanent. The old Jewish rabbis used to remind people that the commandments were given to Israel in the wilderness, not in the land of Israel, showing they were meant for all nations and not just for Israel. That's an important point to remember. God has indicated these commands are applicable all times, all people, all places. Second, because these commands are a reflection of the character of God, and the character of God does not change, and He Himself is the ultimate pattern of what is good and right and holy, then it's logically obvious that what is good and right and holy does not change. So when we move into the New Testament, what is good and right and holy is the same as it was in the Old Testament with regard to the moral law. Now, there's uh, charts, and uh, I'll probably bring one one of these, that show you how each one of the Ten Commandments is reaffirmed in the New Testament. Civil law may change. The ceremonial law may change. Those are the other two types of law in the Old Testament. God gave those laws to specific situations and circumstances 
and people and purposes, but not his moral law. His moral law forever binds us all because it's the moral law that's written on the heart. Reformed theology's understanding of the moral law is ultimately rooted in the doctrine of creation. The Ten Commandments delivered to Israel at Mount Sinai is the same moral law originally written by God on the hearts of human beings in creation. Paul argues that in Romans 2. He says, For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. God's law is written on our hearts. And that's why every society throughout human history has had some version of these laws. You don't have to convince people at any time that murder is bad. We all just know that. Because God has instilled that in all of us, all people, everywhere. Third, we have to remember Jesus himself emphasized he didn't come to do away with the law. This was our responsive reading uh, this morning, Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, by his own example, is faithful in keeping the whole of the moral law of God. That's called his active obedience. And since we're supposed to be conformed to his image, and he kept the law, we need to keep the law if we are actually going to be conformed to his image. Another thing to realize is how often the New Testament references the Ten Commandments as authoritative for the Christian life. And we're going to look at that individually as we go through them. But just very quickly, we see Ephesians 6, Romans 13, when he's speaking to congregations that are predominantly Gentiles. He's, he's writing to churches that are not largely Jewish Christians, but Gentile Christians. And Paul quotes the commandments. In Romans 13, he says, love is fulfilling the law. So he tells those Gentiles to fulfill the law. In Ephesians 6, he quotes the command to honor uh, your father and mother. And he quotes it to a congregation that is Gentile, and he expects them to obey. So there's numerous passages in the New Testament that make it clear that believers still need to obey the law. Now, all of that, what they are, what they do, and the fact they still apply today, leaves us with a massive problem. And that problem is though we still need to obey the law, we regularly fail to obey the law. And that's the problem which will show us the solution. So I said, I didn't go through each one of the Ten Commandments today. I didn't go through and explain what each of them are. But even when you get an overview, uh, like I just tried to do, you can start to feel the weight of the law. And that's the problem of the law. It's a problem they felt. On one hand, you hear the law of God, and you think, of course, I should live like that. 
Romans 2 says the law is written on our hearts no matter who we are. But then you sort of start thinking about your own life and you say, you know, but I don't live like that. I can't keep them. I don't keep them. I break them all the time. So I'm condemned. And Israel realized the law of God is something they can't live with and something they can't live without. I have to obey it. I can't obey it. That's the problem. Well, there's three gospel truths that show us the way out of that problem. And the first one is that Jesus atoned for our failure to obey the commandments. The commands of God are pure and true and beautiful. They're a perfect reflection of his character and his will and stand in stark contrast um, uh, to ourselves and our character. We're spiritual failures who could be justly condemned for our sins, but our failure is not the end. Jesus has fully atoned for our sins through his death on the cross, and by it, we're reconciled to God. That's Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus atoned for our failure to keep the law. Second, Jesus fulfilled the commandments for us. Not only has God forgiven our unrighteousness, he's given us the righteousness of Christ, declaring that in Christ we're holy and blameless. At every point where we have failed, Jesus has been faithful. With these very commandments, Jesus was not only righteous, but he was righteous for us. So it says in Romans 5, for it's by the one man, Adam, by the one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus atoned for our failure. He fulfilled the commandments for us. And third, he empowers us to live out those commandments. He empowers us. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ, we're not only delivered from the curse of the law, but we're empowered by God to obey. Yes, we remain sinners. We find ourselves unable to uh, loose ourselves from sin's presence this side of heaven. But God is at work in his people to enable us to walk in his ways. You really can live a godly life. A life in which you acknowledge and repent of your sins, surely and submit yourself to the will and ways of God through the power that comes by the Holy Spirit. As we read in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even after the giving of the law, God knew that his people would need forgiveness. Of course, these Sacrifices pointed to the uh, uh, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. So they would give forgiveness the Old Testament through the sacrificial system, pointing ahead to the sacrifice of Christ, who pays the penalty for our sin by his death on the cross. And his sacrifice pleased God, and so now we can be reconciled to God. In fact, the author of Hebrews refers to Jesus as our altar. 
He was the burnt offering that made sacrifice for our sin. He's the fellowship offering that reconciles us to God. Therefore, when it comes to worship, the most important thing we do is to remember Jesus, who he is and what he has done. On the cross, Jesus Christ was not just dying the death that we should have died, but living the life we should have lived. Jesus Christ was fulfilling the law. He's doing what God wants us to do. When he went to the cross to die for our sins, he's loving the Lord his God who loves heart, soul, mind, and strength the way no one else ever has. No one else has ever loved the Lord like that, and no one else has ever loved his neighbor like that because he died for you and me. He was fulfilling the law perfectly, fulfilling the law completely in a way no one else ever has. And that's why when we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For his sake he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. It means that not only are our sins put on him, but he's, and he's given what we deserve. But his righteousness comes to us, his obedience, his fulfillment of the law comes to us. And now God treats us as if we've done everything he's done. And that means two things. One, we don't have to be afraid to obey the law because we're accepted already through what Jesus has done. We don't have to be afraid. And second, I can obey the law out of delight because I know it's good for me and I know it's going to be helpful. Now, I know that I'm going to be imperfect in how I do it, but I don't have to feel incredibly guilty all the time because even my imperfect obedience to the law is a way to start to love the one who did this for me. After all, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In a few minutes, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And we're doing more than merely remembering. We're standing before the Lord at a moment of decision. And here the ancient call of Deuteronomy extends to us through Christ. And he's not asking whether we're going to choose life or death. But he's asking whether we'll choose life through death. And there we behold our crucified Lord, who calls us now to choose life by coming to the cross, repenting of our sins, receiving him by faith, and proclaiming his death until he comes again. So ultimately, the big question of obeying the Ten Commandments boils down to this. Do you love Jesus? If so, then come to his table, Receive his grace so that you may obey his law. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to love your law. In fact, far too often we live in fear of it. We forget that the commandments reflect your character and ours. And we forget that Jesus fulfilled the law in his active obedience and then took our sin and gave us his righteousness 
his fulfillment of the law through his passive obedience. And so by your grace, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would change us, enable us to love the law, enable us to live by the law, enable us to love you, and through all of that, enable us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And grant that we may live like people who love the law because we love you, so that we may receive the blessings of the law seen in lives lived in obedience to your word. And so work in each of us this year as we learn more about knowing God as your family, as your chosen sons and daughters. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word. And through the book of Deuteronomy, draw us ever closer to the one who offered up his righteous life, paid the penalty for our unrighteous lives. Your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.